أعوذ بالله من الشيطان اللعين الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا ونبينا محمد وعلى أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين السلام عليكم dear brothers and sisters ورحمة الله وبركاته and welcome back to another episode of the life of Prophet Muhammad so for a few episodes now, we've been speaking about the Battle of Khaybar. In our last episode, we spoke a little bit about uh, the history of Fedak and what exactly happened with the land of Fedak during the time of the Prophet, as well as after the death of the Prophet. Now, we've reached the end of the seventh year uh, after the Hijrah. Now... It's important to remember that the Treaty of Hudaybiyah that we spoke about several episodes ago, it took place in the sixth year after the Hijrah. Now, this treaty will eventually be uh, violated by the Mushrikeen. However, for about a year and a half to two years, the Muslims live in a period of relative peace and prosperity in Medina. So the, the post-Hudaybiyah period, lasting for about 18 months to about two years, was a very, uh, was a very peaceful time for the, uh, the Muslims. It was a time where they could enjoy their families, they could propagate the message of Islam in peace. They were not... Uh, as worried about their uh, their safety and their security. And of course, after the, the conquest of Khaybar, the Muslims were recipients of a tremendous amount of wealth. There was a lot of wealth that now enters the city of Medina. And as we mentioned in our previous episodes, many of the Sahaba would note that we never felt satiated until after the conquering of Khaybar. So the standard of living for many of the companions and their families was significantly upgraded after the battle of Khaybar. Now, as you can imagine, with new wealth, of course, people want to improve their living standards and this also includes the wives of the Prophet. You know, we can't remove the natural human tendencies from the conversation. So as all of this wealth is entering the city, the wives of the Prophet also begin to ask for more things. Now here, what's interesting is that we find that the Qur'an makes it a point here to remind the wives of the Prophet of their unique position in the Muslim community. They're not, they have to remember they're, that they're not ordinary wives. They are the wives of the Messenger of God, the man who is to live a life of zuhud and simplicity. And therefore you find that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when He sees that there is a little bit of greed that's beginning to surface uh, among the wives of the Prophet, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala issues a warning to them. In fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives them an ultimatum. 
if we look at Surah Al-Ahzab, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addressing the wives of the Prophet. He says, Ya ayyuhan nabi, qul li azwajik, O Prophet, say to your wives, In kuntunna turidna al-hayata dunya wa zinataha, فتعالينا أمتعكن وأسرحكن صراحا جميلا. O Prophet, say to your wives, if you should desire the worldly life and its adornment, then come. I will provide for you and give you a gracious release. Basically, Allah is instructing the Prophet to tell those wives who are now inclined towards the dunya, who want to enjoy the the wealth and the adornments of this world, Allah is saying that if this is what they want, give them what they want. But if they want to take this path, if they want to live a life of comfort and luxury, then they they have to be released. They can no longer be your wives. So give them this option. If you want dunya, you can have dunya. But you lose a husband like the Messenger of Allah. And then in the next ayah, Allah says, وَإِن كُنْتُنَّا تُرِدْنَ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ وَالدَّارَ الْآخِرَةِ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ أَعَدَّ لِلْمُحْسِنَاتِ مِنْ كُنَّ أَجْرًا عَظِيمًا But if you should desire Allah and His Messenger and the abode of the hereafter, then indeed Allah has prepared for the good doers among you a great reward. So this ultimatum is given to the wives of the Prophet. If you want dunya, take it. The Prophet will give you what you want, but he will divorce you. But if you want to live a life of simplicity, a life of zuhud, a life where you live within your means, you don't live an ostentatious life, if, that, if, if you don't want that, then you get the honor of remaining with the Prophet. And if you are pious, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will prepare for you a great reward. Now, there's a, an interesting uh, quotation that I want to share. Uh, and this is uh, found in a book on the life of the Prophet called Muhammad in Medina. It was written by a Scottish historian, and I've, I think I've cited him uh, a couple of times already in this, uh, in this series. Uh, William Montgomery Watt, he died in 2006, and he wrote a number of books on the life of the Prophet. One of them is Muhammad in Medina. Of course, from the title, uh, we can see that this book focuses on the Prophet Alaihi's life in Medina, the Medani period. Now, in his book, he makes an interesting observation. He comments on the temperamental differences between the women of Mecca and the women of Medina. Now what happens when, when all of this, this in, when this influx of wealth takes place uh, as a result of the conquest of Khaybar, there is a lot of domestic conflict you know, specifically between husbands and wives. You know, so now a lot of the women are pressuring, you know, the husbands to, to speak out, you know, to get more of a share of the, uh, the wealth. So 
Montgomery, uh, William Montgomery Watt, he makes a comment about the difference between the personalities of Meccan women and Medini women. He says, indeed, the women of Medina in general were noted for pride and for jealousy of their honor and position, summarized in the word ghayra. Ghayra is a sort of protective uh, jealousy. Now, of course, it's a virtue for, for men, but it's considered a vice uh, for women. So, he continues saying, Muhammad, the Prophet ﷺ, is said to have remarked that because of their ghayra, because of the ghayra of the Ansari women, of the Madani women, he would not marry a woman of the Ansar since she would not have sufficient patience to endure fellow wives. And even if this is not the whole reason for Muhammad's not marrying a Medani woman, there is doubtless something in it. And the contrast between the social attitudes in Mecca and Medina may explain why there was hardly any intermarriage between the emigrants, meaning the Muhajireen, and the Ansar. And then he continues saying, a saying of the Caliph, Umar, so he's speaking about Umar ibn al-Khattab, he says, Umar ibn al-Khattab once said, we of Quraysh, so Umar, of course, is one of the Muhajireen, he's a, a resident of Mecca, we of Quraysh used to dominate our women. But when we came among the Ansar, they proved to be a people whose women dominated them. And our women began to copy the habits of the women of the Ansar. Now, because Medina was an agricultural uh, society, the women were, were generally tougher, right? Because of the the uh, the work that was demanded of them, you know, you know, think about the difference between uh, rural folk and city folk. You know, people who live on farms who are who are in the in the countryside on the countryside, they tend to be tougher because you know life and the nature of living in those places requires you to be a bit tough, to be a little bit more assertive, and so on. So what we find is that. When you look at the Prophet ﷺ, none of his wives were from the Ansar, uh, and and according to uh, to this historian, that could have been one of the reasons because of the the uh, the temperamental uh, uh, differences between Medini women and Meccan women. Now, the point that I'm trying to make here is that when you have all of this wealth entering Medina, it created some conflicts between husbands and wives, especially uh, the Ansari women who were a bit more aggressive and assertive. You know, they were essentially poking at their husbands and uh, perhaps demanding uh, upgrades uh, with respect to their, uh, their living standard. What's interesting here is that we see historical reports that mention uh, that Umar ibn al-Khattab was often tested by his wife Zainab bint Mad'un. On one occasion, he actually scolds her for her boldness. And his wife Zainab responds by saying that, 
You know, why are you lashing out at me, you know, for being forthright, for being blunt about, you know, what I want? The wives of the Prophet are free to voice their opinions to Rasulullah. So why are you so impatient and intolerant with me? The Prophet he's very tolerant and open uh, to listening to the, uh, the comments and the opinions of his wives. So the narrations mention that you know, Umar ibn al-Khattab wanted to actually verify uh, whether or not this was truly the case. So he actually confronts Umm Salama, you know, probably complaining about his wife and asking, you know, do you guys... Uh, do you guys voice your opinions about issues to the Prophet? Because Umar ibn al-Khattab has a very you know, authoritarian approach, a very dictatorial uh, style. Uh, so he wants to see, you know, is the Prophet like this in his domestic life? And Umm Salama confirms that the Prophet was indeed uh, open and receptive to the opinions of his wives. Now this doesn't mean that the Prophet ﷺ would just go along with whatever his wives wanted. The point is that the Prophet would listen to them, he would hear them out, and then he would ultimately uh, decide on what was best. But he would never shut them down. He allowed them to express their opinions and uh, their views. Now, so that was just a little bit about... Uh, you know, the, the prosperity that came about uh, after Hudaybiyah and after Khaybar. And one of the things that happens the following year after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, in the seventh year after the Hijrah, so in the same year that uh, the Battle of Khaybar took place, the Prophet ﷺ performs Umratul Qadha. Umratul Qadha is basically the minor pilgrimage, but it's, it's performed as a qadha, because as we recall, the previous year, in the sixth year after the hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ, he saw a dream that he was performing the, the, uh, the pilgrimage, and he travels to Mecca with his companions. However, they are intercepted, and they are prevented from entering Mecca. And then, of course, this is where the Treaty of Hudaybiyah is, uh, is signed, now, one of the conditions, one of the clauses that we find in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah reads as follows. Among the clauses that they agree upon is that we, meaning the Quraysh, we shall give you full access to the house, to Masjid al-Haram, during this month, meaning during the month of the Al-Qa'dah, next year, for three days, so you can perform your rites and leave. So the agreement in Hudaybiyah was that Muhammad and his followers would return to Medina. They will not perform Umrah this year. However, next year in the month of the Al-Qa'dah, they are permitted to return and to perform their Umrah. And they have three, three days. They have basically 72 hours to come and perform the rites of the minor pilgrimage and then go back to Medina. Now, Ibn Hisham in Asir al-Nabawiyya, he quotes Ibn Ishaq. He says, قَالَ إِبْنُ إِسْحَاقَ فَلَمَّا رَجْعَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَآلِهِ إِلَى الْمَدِينَةِ مِنْ خَيْبَرِ So after the Prophet came back to Medina, after conquering Khaybar, أَقَامَ بِهَا شَهْرَيْ رَبِيعٍ وَجَمَادَيْنِ وَرَجَبًا وَشَعْبًا وَرَمَضَانِ وَشَوَّالِ So the Prophet, after conquering Khaybar, 
He comes back to Medina. He stays in Medina during Rabi'ul Awwal, Rabi'ul Thani, Jumad Al-Ula, Jumad Al-Thani, Rajab, Sha'ban, Ramadan, and Shawwal. So for about eight months, he stays in Medina. And after the month of Shawwal, he, of course, he ends up sending uh, some companions on some minor uh, military expeditions that are, you know, that are so minor that we don't really have very many details about them. ثُمَّ خَرَجَ فِي ذِي الْقِعْدَةِ Then that same year, in the month of the Qa'dah, in the same month that he was blocked from performing the Umrah the previous year, فِي الشَّهْرِ الَّذِي صَدَّهُ فِيهِ الْمُشْرِكُونَ مُعْتَمِرًا عُمْرَةَ الْقَضَاءِ So the Prophet uh, prepares to perform Umrah al-Qadha' فَكَانَ عُمْرَتُهُ الَّتِي صَدُّهُ عَنَا And that Umrah was basically a qadha for the Umrah that they prevented him from performing. The Prophet ﷺ, he took 60 camels for the sacrifice. So one of the things that you have to do during the Umrah is that you have to, uh, you have to sacrifice. You need to make an animal sacrifice. The Prophet takes 60 camels with him for sacrifice. He also took a hundred horses and put these under the care of Muhammad ibn Maslama. He also took weapons and armor and put these in the charge of Bashir ibn Sa'd. So it seems that the horses and the weaponry that the Prophet brings, uh, of course, this is not this is not a requirement for. For the uh, for the Umrah, it's basically a requirement. The, the camels are being brought for sacrifice. The horses are not being brought for sacrifice. So the horses and the the weapons and the armor are brought for a different reason. Now someone might ask here, why is the Prophet bringing weapons with him and armor? Because one of the conditions in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was that he would not be allowed to bring any more than the conventional sheathed sword with him. So, because it was customary for the average Arab to travel with with a sheathed sword, and such a person would not be technically considered armed, because that's what everybody carries around. So, when the Prophet was questioned about whether or not he's violating one of the uh, conditions and one of the provisions of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, the Prophet responds by saying, we shall not take these weapons into the haram. Meaning that we're not going to bring these weapons and this armor into the sacred sanctuary of Mecca. But they will be stashed nearby. We'll keep the weapons outside of the the sanctuary of, uh, of Mecca. And if we face any trouble from them, meaning that if the... Mushrikeen, if the Quraysh decide to attack us, if they decide to violate the terms of the treaty, at least our weapons will be near at hand and we can defend ourselves. And of course, this was very wise of the Prophet So again, this is another important lesson that the Prophet is not being reckless. Yes, he places his absolute trust in Allah, but taking the necessary precautions in terms of, of, of military readiness, 
does not negate a person's trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Prophet leaves 200 people under the command of Aus ibn Khawli to guard the weapons. So again, the Prophet sallallahu he basically is performing Umrah now with, two, with about 2,000 Sahaba, significant number of, of people who are joining the Prophet. So he ensures that uh, there are weapons that are nearby in case there is a sudden uh, attack and the Muslims have to defend themselves. So, <clears throat> so why did the Prophet do this? Again, as I explained, to basically let the Quraysh know. And, if, and the Prophet, interestingly, he's not being secretive about the fact that he has weapons, that he's brought weapons and armor with him. Yes, he's not going to bring it into the Haram, but it's going to be uh, within reach. And this alone uh, was probably a deterrent. If the Meccans were even considering attacking the Muslims during the Umrah, the fact that they know that the Muslims have their weapons nearby uh, definitely made them uh, think twice. So the Prophet reassures them that he's not bringing any weapons into the Haram. They're stationed outside of the, of the sanctuary. Now, there's an interesting uh, report by Ibn Ishaq, which I think is worthy of mention. And again, this is mentioned by Ibn Hisham. He says, قَالَ Ibn Ishaq وَخَرَجَ And again, as a reminder, Ibn Hisham draws a lot of his material from the seerah of Ibn Ishaq. قَالَ Ibn Ishaq وَخَرَجَ مَعَهُ الْمُسْلِمُونَ مِمَّنْ كَانُ صُدَّ مَعَهُ فِي عُمْرَتِهِ تِلْكِ وَهِيَ سَنَةْ سَبْعِ so the Prophet is now traveling to Mecca with the, with the Muslims who were with him the previous year, who were denied access and who were barred from entering Mecca. So they join him on his Umrah, and this is the seventh year after the Hijrah. فَلَمَّا سَمِعَ بِهِ أَهْلُ So Quraysh you know, essentially uh, evacuates, they leave the city in, uh, in compliance with the treaty. وَتَحَدَّثَتْ قُرَيْشُ بَيْنَهَا أَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا وَأَصْحَابَهُ فِي عُسْرَةٍ وَجَهْدٍ وَشِدَّةٍ The Quraysh, they basically get together and they start talking amongst themselves that Muhammad and his companions are going through some difficulties and they're basically weak. They're a bunch of weaklings. Now, it seems that word reached the Prophet that the Mushrikeen, for whatever reason, they have this impression that the Muslims are weak. So it's probably perhaps because they've been through so many battles, uh, they had just, even though they've defeated the uh, the Jews in Khaybar, it was it was a very physically and mentally taxing battle for them. So the Quraysh are basically saying that Muhammad and his companions they're they're weak. So the Prophet look at the wisdom of Rasulullah. He sees that the non-Muslims, the Quraysh, they have a negative. There's a, there's a misconception about 
the strength of the Muslims. And this is something that we can even learn to and apply today. The, the mushrikeen, the polytheists, they have a negative impression of the Muslims. They have some mis- this misconception that the Muslims are weak. So what does the Prophet do? The Prophet instructs the Muslims to do something to dispel that misconception. So what does the Prophet say? The Prophet says, May Allah, may God have mercy upon whoever shows strength on a day like this. So the Prophet is instructing the Muslims to engage in a show of power, a display of power. So he tells them, to recite the talbiyah, labbayk Allahumma labbayk, loudly. And you can imagine, you have 2,000 uh, Muslims, 2,000 Sahaba, and they're all proclaiming the talbiyah, you know, with, with their loud voices. They're projecting that strength with their voices, with their posture. And then the Prophet, the, hadith, the narration says, وَخَرَجَ يُهَرْوِلُ وَيُهَرْوِلُ أَصْحَابُهُ مَعَ And the Prophet took the lead. He was, cir- he was circling the Kaaba quickly. He was almost doing it with, as a, uh, almost not sprinting, but a very brisk uh, walk. He was walking very fast, speed walking, to again uh, show the mushrikeen that the Muslims are strong, they have, uh, they have high spirits, and their morale is high. And this is a very important lesson that we as Muslims need to learn. If we understand that non-Muslims have a negative impression of Islam and Muslims, or non-Muslims have a certain misconception that, for example, Muslims are, are violent, they're not peaceful, we have to make an extra effort to show that Islam is a peaceful religion. If you know non-Muslims believe that Muslims harbor malice towards Christians and Jews, Muslims need to make an extra effort to show that we are a religion that has a special respect to the recipients of previous revelations, that we call them Ahlul Kitab. So, without compromising our religious values, we have to, we can't ignore and neglect the misconceptions uh, that non-Muslims have about us. We have to make that effort to correct those misconceptions, and this is what we see uh, the Prophet doing here: that the, the Mushrikeen have this impression that the Muslims are weak, the Prophet encourages and motivates the Muslims to display their their power and their vigor during the the pilgrimage. So as I mentioned, before the Umrah begins, the Quraysh, they clear out of the city, and they do this even before the, uh, the pilgrims arrive. Now upon entering the Holy Sanctuary, of course the Prophet is the one who's leading the Muslims, he's leading them uh, into the footsteps of Ibrahim and Hajar, and much, if not most, of the a'mal of Hajj are related to the life and the legacy of Ibrahim and Hajar. Now, the pilgrims, they circle the Kaaba seven times, so they're following the lead of the Prophet, and... uh, and they also walk between, they do seven circuits between Safa 
and Marwa. Now what's interesting here is that when you look at the Hadith literature, you see that we have a few narrations that provide uh, some detailed descriptions of the Prophet's Umrah. So, so again, the this is the first actual Umrah of the Prophet. And I, the reason why I'm saying actual Umrah of the Prophet is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rewarded the Prophet and the Muslims for their intention to do the Umrah last year. But this is basically, technically the first Umrah that is actually being uh, initiated and carried out by the Prophet. The narrations say that the Prophet ﷺ performed tawaf from atop his, uh, his camel and he touched the corners of the Kaaba with his staff and then he would kiss his staff. Again, to show and to demonstrate to the Muslims the sanctity of the Kaaba. Now, as a side comment, it's interesting here that the Prophet does tawaf not on foot, but on top of his camel. Now, when we look at the, when we reflect on the Sunnah of the Prophet, it's important for us to understand the definition of the Sunnah of the Prophet. Now, the Sunnah of the Prophet is basically represented by the actions, the words, and the tacit approval of the Prophet. So, the reason why we say that doing tawaf while you're riding an animal is permissible, it's not because we have an explicit narration that says riding, that the Prophet said riding on a camel during tawaf is permissible. The Prophet doesn't need to say that. So the sunnah of the Prophet is not necessarily what is explicitly said by the Prophet. We have instances like this where the Prophet does something and the action of the Prophet is an indication of at the very least its permissibility or its obligation or its recommendation. So we know that it is permissible to do tawaf around the Kaaba while you're riding on a camel, not because the Prophet said it's permissible, but because the Prophet, the Prophet's action indicated its, its uh, permissibility. And there might be another situation. So the Prophet's words are sunnah. The Prophet's actions are a part of uh, the sunnah of the Prophet. And also the Prophet's tacit approval. If, an, if someone does something in the presence of the Prophet and, the, and Rasulullah does not rebuke them for it or he does not protest, then from the silence of the Prophet, we deduce that that action is permissible. Because if someone had committed a forbidden act, something that goes against the Sharia, in the presence of Rasulullah, Rasulullah has a moral duty, he has a religious duty to enjoin good and forbid evil. So the Prophet's silence becomes his, his tacit approval. So there are many things that we know are permissible in the Sharia simply because they were performed in the presence of the Prophet or it was brought to the Prophet's attention and the Prophet ﷺ did not uh, condemn it or prohibit it. So the Prophet is on his camel and it seems that the Prophet did this for, for practical purposes because 
he wanted all of the Muslims to to see him, and it would be di- it would be difficult to see for all the Muslims to observe the rituals of Hajj if the Prophet was just in the middle of the crowd. So it seems that he sits on the camel, so he's elevated, so the Muslims could easily observe and uh, emulate the uh, the rites of the pilgrimage. There's a interesting narration here from Ibn Ishaq where he says, قال ابن إسحاق وحدثني عبد الله بن أبي بكر عبد الله بن أبي بكر says أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وآله حين دخل مكة في تلك العمرة دخلها وعبد الله بن رواحة آخذ بخطام ناقته يقول so عبد الله بن رواحة who's a, uh, a companion of the Prophet, a great companion of the Prophet, who was also a, a great poet. And as we will discuss in our uh, subsequent episodes, he actually is one of the companions who was martyred in the Battle of Mu'tah, right, with, uh, with, Ja'f, with the likes of, for example, Ja'far ibn Abi Talib. So Abdullah ibn Rawaha is holding the reins of the Prophet's camel, and he begins to recite a poem as he's guiding the Prophet's camel. He says, خَلُّوا بَنِ الْكُفَّارِ عَنْ سَبِيلِهِ خَلُّوا فَكُلُّ الْخَيْرِ فِي رَسُولِهِ يَا رَبِّ إِنِّي مُؤْمِنٌ بِقِيلِهِ أَعْرِفُ حَقَّ اللَّهِ فِي قَبُولِهِ نَحْنُ قَاتَلْنَاكُمْ عَلَى تَأْوِيلِهِ كَمَا قَاتَلْنَاكُمْ عَلَى تَنْزِيلِهِ ضَرْبًا يزيل الهام عن مقيله ويذهل الخليل عن خليله. He says, and again, this is a rough translation. He says, "Get out of his way," meaning get out of the way of the prophet, you unbelievers. Make way, for all goodness is in God's messenger. O Lord, I am a believer in His words, and I know God's right through His, meaning the prophet's acceptance. We fought over its interpretation meaning the interpretation of the Qur'an, as we fought you over its revelation, with a striking on top of the heads, causing the intimate friend to abandon his intimate friend. Now as Abdullah ibn Rawaha is reciting these lines of poetry, there's, there are narrations that say, Umar ibn al-Khattab objects. قَالَ Umar يَبْنَ ibn Rawaha بَيْنَ يَدَيْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وآله وفي حرم الله تقول الشعر Umar says that O Ibn Rawaha you, in, 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 in front of the Prophet and in the sanctuary in, in Masjid al-Haram you are reciting poetry he's basically rebuking him saying that it's not appropriate for you to recite shi'r to recite poetry in the presence of the Prophet and in this sacred place قَالَ النَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَآلِهِ But the Prophet responds to, he, by saying خَلِّعًا That the Prophet says to Umar that let him be فَلَهُوَ أَسْرَعُ فِيهِمْ مِنْ نَضْحِ النَّبْلِ The Prophet says that let him recite poetry because his poetry, the poetry of Abdullah ibn Rawaha is more effective than shooting arrows at them. Right? This, the poetry, the rhetoric of Abdullah ibn Rawaha is more effective in demoralizing the mushrikeen than shooting arrows at them. So after the Prophet performs his tawaf, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi, he dismounts 
his camel and he prays behind Maqam Ibrahim. And this is really incredible, brothers and sisters. When you think about Prophet Ibrahim السلام, this great messenger of God, who's, who basically, whose memory becomes the template for Muslims to follow. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants all Muslims until the Day of Judgment, including Rasulullah, to pray behind Maqam Ibrahim. وَاتَّخِذُوا مِن مَقَامِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ مُصَلَّى Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala considers the footprint of Ibrahim, the standing place of Ibrahim, to be a sacred space. Because these are the footprints and the standing place of a man who was annihilated in the love of God. Ibrahim, the maqam of Ibrahim is one of Sha'airullah, it's one of the symbols of God. Right? So a very important aspect of Islam is to honor the symbols of God. Unfortunately, the, the, Wahhabi, uh, the Wahhabi sect today seeks to eliminate many of these things that are symbols of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now yes, they might not be trying to destroy Maqam Ibrahim, but anything that is related to the Prophet, the Prophet's house, the Prophet's birthplace, you know, Jannatul Baqi, these things that are from Sha'airullah, that are symbols of God, that remind us of Allah, because they're connected to uh, people of piety, people of taqwa, people of righteousness. In any case, the Prophet, he prays behind Maqam Ibrahim. He then... And by the way, Maqam Ibrahim was a lot closer to the Kaaba. It was actually moved further by uh, Umar ibn al-Khattab. So the Prophet finishes Maqam Ibrahim, finish, finishes praying behind Maqam Ibrahim. He then remounted and he proceeded to the area of Safa and Marwa. So again, from atop his camel, he performs the Sa'i between Safa and Marwa seven times. After the Sa'i, he sacrificed his camels at Marwa. So he sacrifices the 60 camels that he brings. And then Rasulullah he has his uh, blessed head shaved. And then he sends 200 to relieve those companions who are guarding the weapons outside of the haram. So the guards are able to come into the haram and they're able to perform their umrah. Now, the Prophet ﷺ, he asked for permission to enter the Kaaba. Because again, Mecca is still under the control of the mushrikeen. Rasulullah asks the mushrikeen for permission to go inside of the Kaaba. They denied. They did not allow the Prophet to enter, and inshallah, uh, in a few minutes we'll speak about uh, some uh, a possible reason why the mushrikeen denied the Prophet access to uh, to the inside of the Kaaba. Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi he then tells Bilal to go on top of the Kaaba and proclaim the adhan to recite the adhan. Now you can imagine this scene, brothers and sisters. Bilal al Habashi, Bilal, the Abyssinian slave. He goes, he climbs, and now he's standing on top of the Kaaba reciting the Adhan. So watching from a distance, 
the locals, right? The Quraysh, many of the prominent figures in Quraysh, the Mushrikeen, they're outraged when they see the slave of Umayyah ibn Khalaf. Umayyah ibn Khalaf was one of the, the senior figures of Meccan society. He was the former slave owner of Bilal. He was killed in Badr. And now this Abyssinian slave, who is considered to be in the eyes of the Arabs at the bottom of the totem pole in terms of social hierarchy. So he's making the adhan. And what was the reaction of the mushrikeen? You know, when they heard the, the voice of Bilal reverberating and echoing through the valley of Mecca, Khalid ibn Usaid, one of the mushrikeen, he says, Thank God that my father died before witnessing this day. When Bilal, the son of a slave, he haws like a donkey atop the Kaaba. These were people who were, who were racist to the core. They were racist to the bone. And we have a comment, a reaction by Ikrama ibn Abi Jahl. Ikram, the son of the infamous Abu Jahl, who was killed also in the Battle of Badr. Ikram says, God honored Abu al-Hakam. Abu al-Hakam was the actual name of Abu Jahl, but he became known as Abu Jahl. He says, God, speaking about his father, God honored Abu al-Hakam by preventing him from hearing the slave say what he is saying. So imagine, they're saying that Alhamdulillah, our fathers are dead. So they don't witness the tragedy of this day. That an Abyssinian slave is standing on top of the Kaaba and reciting the call for prayer. Now why was the call of Bilal, the Adhan of Bilal so significant? Of course, I've already alluded to uh, some of the reasons. But there's a beautiful quotation here by Adil Salahi. Uh, he's... Uh, I believe an academic who wrote a book called Muhammad, Man and Prophet. It's a very interesting biography of the Prophet. And he says, what made Bilal's action even more offensive to the people of Mecca was the fact that he used to be a slave owned by Umayyah ibn Khalaf, who was later killed at the Battle of Badr, in the Meccan idolatrous society which was extremely class conscious. The fact that a former slave could rise on top of the Kaaba where the Quraysh put their idols was something that they could not accept. Because from their perspective, an Abyssinian slave is standing on top of the place that houses our gods. So for them, this was extremely sacrilegious and it violated uh their most, uh, their deepest religious uh, sentiments. Another interesting incident that takes place during this Umrah is that the Prophet's uncle, now as, we, as you remember, the Prophet's uncle converted to Islam after the Battle of Badr. He was actually one of the captives and the Prophet shares with him some knowledge of the unseen about what he had stored that he had told no one about. He converts to Islam, but he basically acts as a secret Muslim in Mecca for all of these years. And he provided very valuable intelligence to the Prophet during these years. But 
Al-Abbas basically remained in Mecca for all of these years. From, of course, during the Meccan period, he wasn't, he wasn't Muslim. Uh, he converts to Islam in the second year after the Hijrah. We're now in the seventh year after the Hijrah. So during those five years, Al-Abbas is in Mecca. He's living among the Mushrikeen and he's basically concealing his faith for the most part. Now during the Umrah, Abbas joins his nephew. He joins the Prophet. And he helps him take care of some uh, pressing family affairs. Now among them is that the Prophet's uncle, Abbas, he had a widowed sister-in-law by the name of Maymuna. And she was basically the, the uh, she was the full sister of his wife. Now Maymuna, interestingly, she becomes the last wife of the Prophet. The Prophet ends up marrying her and it's, it's possible that Al-Abbas was, uh, was suggesting that the Prophet marry uh, Maymuna. Now Maymuna was also the maternal half-sister of Asma bint al-Harith who was incidentally the mother of Khalid ibn al-Walid who was the, the mushrik in the Battle of Uhud who, you know... Uh, dealt a devastating blow to the uh, the Muslims in the Battle of Uhud. He's known as uh, a, uh, a great military commander, a great uh, military strategist. So some historians say that it's very likely that the Prophet married her to establish a kinship relationship with his fierce opponents, the Banu Makhzum, and of course, uh, Khalid ibn al-Walid was, uh, was from that, that clan. So as we see again, the Prophet ﷺ, through his marriages, he at the very least neutralizes some of his most fierce enemies. Now at the end of the three-day period, Suhail ibn Amr, which should be a familiar name because he was the same individual who negotiated with the Prophet during Hudaybiyah. Suhail ibn Amr, he comes to Rasulullah and he says that the three days have passed. You and your companions have to now leave Mecca. You have to evacuate the sacred sanctuary. Now the Prophet sallallahu alaihi he just he uh, after finishing his umrah, he he marries Maymuna, and he offers to prepare a wedding feast to share with the mushrikeen. But unfortunately, they refuse. The invitation of the Prophet. ﷺ. The Mushrikeen, after the Muslims finish their Umrah, they bring their idols back. It seems that uh, you know many of their idols that were around the Kaaba and perhaps in other places, they were taken away. But one straggler hadn't done his sa'i yet. So one of the Muslims, one of the companions, was a bit late. So as the mushrikeen are bringing their idols back, this Muslim still has to do sa'i between Safa and Marwa, and he looks at the two hills, and there are idols that are put back in their positions. So the question arises whether or not it's permissible for him to do sa'i between Safa and Marwa now that the idols have been restored. And this is where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals this ayah in the Quran, the famous ayah about Safa and Marwa in Surah Al-Baqarah, verse 158, Inna safa wal marwa min Indeed, as-Safa 
and and Marwa, those two hills, they are min sha'arillah. They are from the symbols of Allah. فَمَنْ حَجَّ الْبَيْتَ أَوْ So whoever makes Hajj to the house or performs Umrah, فَلَا جُنَاحَ عَلَيْهِ أَنْ يَطَّوَّفَ بِهِمَا There is no blame upon him. So the reason why the Qur'an here is saying there is no blame upon him is because they thought it would be blameworthy to do sa'i while those idols are present. But Allah says there is no blame upon you because Safa and Marwa are among the symbols of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَمَنْ تَطَوَّعَ خَيْرًا فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ شَاكِرٌ عَلِيمٌ Now according to reports, there was no condition in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah that the idols be removed. Uh, but of course, when the Prophet asked them to remove the idols, they did so. Now, it's, now as I mentioned earlier, the Prophet made a request to enter the Kaaba, but the Mushrikeen did not allow him. So the question here arises, why did they listen to the Prophet when it came to removing the idols, but they did not allow him to enter the Kaaba? Now, it's very possible, and again, this is just a theory. Some historians have said, that the reason why they did not allow the Prophet to enter the Kaaba is because there might have been some idols that were hidden away in the Kaaba, and they were afraid that if they allowed the Prophet to enter, or they allowed the Muslims to enter with the Prophet, they may desecrate their idols. So they were uh, they were very wary that their idols might be destroyed. So they decided to refuse uh, to allow the Prophet to enter the Kaaba, and. The Prophet again, the entire Umrah is completed, and they end up returning to Medina in the month of the Hijjah. They return to Medina. Inshallah, in our coming episodes, uh, we'll be speaking about the Battle of Mu'tah, which is one of the most important battles uh, during the Medini period. Of course, all of the battles took place in the Medini period, but this was a very important battle. Uh, it's a battle in which the Prophet as we will discuss, he loses uh, his beloved cousin uh, Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, among some other uh, great companions of the Prophet. Inshallah, we'll speak about the events leading up to the Battle of Mu'tah and as well as what transpired in the Battle of Mu'tah in our coming episodes. Thank you so much, brothers and sisters, for tuning in once again. والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته